seats. We're continuing this morning in our series on grace. And the text for this morning comes from Romans chapter 3. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of the first tenets of Christianity in the way that we present it at Trinity is we are bad. You and I are bad. The text this morning says we're bad. And yet, most of us, knowing this, know what the Scripture says about us, we attempt to continue to ask the question, am I good enough? Am I good enough? I had a really fun time trying to answer this question one time. I had some Mormon missionaries show up at our house in Pennsylvania early on when we lived there. And I thought, this is great. I'm glad that you guys are here. Um, Can you come back another time? Can you come back Thursday at, let's say, 4 o'clock? 
And I said, yeah, I can do that. So I thought it would be fun to include one of the students in my ministry in this conversation. His name was Dan. And I said, Dan, hey, I'm going to talk to some Mormon missionaries on Thursday at 4 o'clock. Do you want to come along? Oh, yeah, this is great. You know, this is, this is really how you learn to do something like this. See, see a master do something like this. And so... I show up and they show up and it's, you know, it's always awkward to call a 19-year-old elder something, you know, it's Elder Bill and Elder Phil and Bill and Phil, I'm not using the real names to protect them, okay? We begin talking and they're so sweet and just about every Mormon I've ever met is so sweet and so kind and, and I, I wanted to get to the heart of the matter. They wanted to talk to me and to Dan about the Book of Mormon and how much it changed their life. And I wanted to talk about Jesus and how much Jesus changed my life. And they said, well, you know, here's, here's what's true about the Book of Mormon. And I thought, here's the way to handle a situation like this. I told this to my student Dan going in, is the key is not to get lost in the details, but talk directly about the gospel and about its application. And so I asked Bill and Phil, I said, Elder Bill and Elder Phil, let me ask you, are you confident that you're going to heaven when you die? Well, yeah, we're pretty confident. We've been pretty good people. What if it was really soon, like you were going to die in five minutes? And they began kind of looking at each other like, are we going to die in five minutes? Then I, then I pushed him a little more. I said, you know what? The house that we're in right now, my home, was built in 1900. Oklahoma wasn't even a state. The thing gets pretty creaky in the wind. And it was October, and we had October winds blowing. I said, it's very possible this entire three-story house could collapse on us right now, and you would die. So... Poor Bill and Phil, they were very nervous and looked at each other and looked at the house and they were, I mean, they were really scared. I said, what if you did die? And what if you appeared before God and he asked you, why should you get into heaven? What would you say? And Phil took the lead and he said, well, I'd tell him, you know, I've done everything that I could. And I said, well, what about you, Bill? I'd say the same thing. And I told him, see, guys, this is why you're going to hell. Because you believe that your relationship with God is dependent upon what you have done and not based upon what Jesus has done. They say, oh, yeah, well, Jesus has done everything too. What strikes me about the many conversations I've had with Mormons is that they are, they are kind of plagued by with this question, have I done enough? The Christian, we never ask this question getting into Christianity because we realize, look, if salvation exists, the only way it can happen is by grace through faith. So very readily, Christians acknowledge that. However, 
most Christians that I know continue daily to ask the question, have I done enough? So while you're Christian in profession, we almost act like functional Mormons. Have I done enough? And it comes from this problem. And I want to help us diagnose the problem. Look at what the text says by nature we are. That we are not righteous, that we do not seek for God, that we tur- we've turned aside, we're worthless, we do no good, we deceive, we curse, we spread bitterness, we shed blood, we bring ruin and misery wherever we go, we do not know peace, and we do not fear God. Apart from God's grace, do you believe this to be true of yourself? Apart from God's grace, do you believe this to be true of yourself? Most of the time, the answer is no. Most of the time, the answer is no. Why? Even the best of us, we think we're good. We think we're better than others. We take a drive through, say, a place like North Tulsa and go, at least I'm not like this. We see someone acting a fool at Walmart and go, at least I'm not like him. Pass by a homeless person near downtown Tulsa and say, I've got money, I've got a job, I've got a home. We think we're good, but you realize good is, of course, a relative term. It's a relative term. We may be good compared to others, but the standard of goodness that the Bible talks about isn't good from one person to another. The standard is from us to God. When the Bible talks about goodness, it's talking about God's standard of goodness. Let's say you're six foot four, and you stand up in a room, you're probably going to be taller than most people. If you're six seven, you're taller than everybody. If you're, if you're seven feet or over in the whole world, there's a 10% chance that you're playing in the National Basketball Association. And if you stand next to the Grand Canyon, you're small and insignificant. Some of us may be better than others, kind of on the horizontal, but when we stand next to God's standard of goodness and righteousness, we pale in comparison. And so, when we we think about our sin, we always think about it, well, on terms of the horizontal, right? And what else comes out? We surprise ourselves with our sin, don't we? I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I thought that. And other people surprise us with their sin, right? Like, I can't believe she said that. I can't believe they did that. 
All of this, to me, shows us that our understanding of sin isn't very deep. If sin so easily surprises us, or if we're kind of constantly comparing ourselves to each other and using this small measure of goodness, then what we do is we, we think lightly of sin, and consequently, we think Romans 3 here doesn't apply to us. You know, just as an aside, uh, in my two-plus years being here at Trinity, I think it's amazing that people walk into a place like Trinity and think that other people in the congregation have it together. I'm one of your pastors. You're a mess. I'm a mess too. It's amazing to me. It really is. To hear people, even now, hear some of you say, oh, well, they just have it together. No. That's a lie. (laughs) That's what the church is. We're a mess. Some of us are messier. Some of us are less messy. But we've all got a mess. There's no one here that's, that's got it together. Um, and you know, that's actually why um, I love it when, when people criticize Christianity as a religion full of hypocrites. It's like, yes, that's exactly right. We are a religion full of hypocrites because we recognize how awful we are and our only hope is in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. You're darn right. The Christianity is full of hypocrites. And so many theologians have written about how the more you actually understand your sin, the more that you see the cross of Jesus is beautiful. How the Apostle Paul went chronologically from describing himself as a persecutor of the church to toward the end of his life saying that he is the chief of sinners. It's not because Paul became more sinful. It's because he began to be acquainted through the Spirit's leading with how deeply sinful he actually is. He began to believe that Romans 3, that he wrote, actually applies to him. So because we struggle to grasp how sinful we we really are, I want to put it in terms of analogy, okay? In business, there are two primary or major types of ways to file for bankruptcy. Chapter 11 and chapter 7. Chapter 11 is often called reorganization bankruptcy. So it allows a business to continue operations while protecting its assets from creditors, okay? And it's designed to be temporary. The other type of bankruptcy is chapter 7. That, that's the type where a business is forced to liquidate, to liquidate all of its assets to pay off its creditors. And it's for a business that's not only deeply in debt, but one that has no future is a viable business. And it's permanent. Okay, chapter 11 is temporary. Chapter 7 is permanent. When you and I begin the, the Christian life, we all declare chapter 7. We say, we have no hope save in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
But as our Christian life goes on, we switch. We try to go from chapter 7 bankruptcy to chapter 11. We believe that our best efforts can't really get us to heaven, of course. But they might somehow bring about God's blessings in our lives. And it's subtle. And it's unconscious. We don't realize that we're doing this that we are reverting back to a works-based relationship with God. Okay, let's do a test case. Which bankruptcy have you declared? I want you to think of a time recently that you've fallen on your face spiritually. Now, think about how long it was before you return to your father in prayer or in reading the Bible or in just genuine fellowship with other Christians, how long did that take? From when you fell on your face spiritually to you talk to your father again? Minutes, hours, days, weeks? The longer it is, the longer it shows us that you've held on to this temporary bankruptcy chapter 11, because you're not realizing that before a holy God, you are completely and utterly bankrupt before you fell on your face spiritually, okay? This became really clear to me. Um, When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to preach twice a month at this little country church uh, in a retirement community. So you can imagine me being 26, 27, showing up, and the the youngest person in the congregation was 60. It was awesome. Um, Absolutely loved it. But it was about an hour and a half drive, and Bonnie and I were dating. And and I... (laughs) We were driving up there. Typically, Bonnie would drive, because as a young preacher, I was very insecure and would, you know, keep scribbling notes, doing last-minute preparation. Um, when I, I used to believe that that stuff was useful, I don't anymore. And somehow we got into a big argument. We're dating, and she is screaming at me. And you wouldn't know it from my wife. She can scream. And I was screaming, and we were just arguing. It was awful. And by the time we got there, we pulled up. There was like 10 minutes until the service starts. And which means we were the last one there because old people always show up early. And so we're in the parking lot there, and I'm thinking, I feel awful because we just had an hour-long screaming match. What was I supposed to do? I mean, I had just sinned all over Bonnie. So I started to get up there and say, hey guys, I can't preach for you today because I just had a horrible argument with my girlfriend and I'm a real jerk and I'm not in the right state of heart or state of mind to bring you God's word today. That's what temporary bankruptcy would say. No. This is a watershed moment for me. I got up and I preached the word of God to him. Because what qualified me to preach then is the same thing that qualifies me to preach now and it has nothing to do with me, but instead was purchased by a man on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. 
I am permanently bankrupt without Jesus. So I preached. I'd like to say that, you know, hundreds came to faith. I don't think anyone came to faith, but after the service, you know, it was one of these churches where you walk out and they always want to shake the pastor's hands. Uh, a, a elderly woman reached out, shook my hand, and she palmed me a $20 bill. It was the best day. I got tipped for preaching. I've been here two years, nobody's tipped me yet. Just saying, just saying. We keep declaring temporary bankruptcy. And this puts us on what we can call this performance treadmill. Performance treadmill. The performance treadmill is what theologians call legalism. It's, it's describing this, what I've been describing. Justification, you get into the Christian life based on grace, but then the Christian life is based entirely on works. And the performance treadmill causes you to question, you know, am I doing enough? Am I trying hard enough? Am I reading enough? Am I praying enough? It also causes you to question what God has done. Does God really love me? Am I actually saved? The pattern that Scripture teaches, though, is justification based on grace. You get into the Christian life based on grace, and you live the entirety of the Christian life based on grace. That's it. There is nothing you ever earn before your heavenly Father. And if you know that, friend, that, that is the freedom, the freedom of permanent bankruptcy. If you declare chapter 7, that's fine, because you're free. All the debts have been paid. Nothing hangs over your head. Let me tell you what, there's a bright side to this. Your debts have been paid. Nothing's hanging over your head. But the guy who files for temporary bankruptcy, he's still scrambling hard just to make it work. He's still trying to pay off creditors. He's trying to figure out a way to earn something. If you're a Christian, you don't have to. The performance treadmill is bad news, but there's not just bad news. I want to show you how grace obliterates the performance treadmill. And we see it in verses 23 and 24, and actually much in the rest of Romans. Look at this, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a good summary of eight verses saying you're terrible, you're not righteous, you've got the venom of asps under your tongue. And he finishes it out, okay, all have sinned. There is no good in you, you fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The book of Romans is the Apostle Paul, to me, it's his magnum opus. 
Where does he use the word grace more in the book of Romans? In talking about coming into the Christian life or in talking about living the Christian life? He actually uses it much more in talking about living the Christian life. So in closing, I want, you to, I, want you, I want you to see three ways of how grace obliterates the performance treadmill. Number one is the performance treadmill kills, but grace gives life. How do you feel when you try hard, but it never seems to be good enough? Mothers, maybe you see this when your house is dirty and your kids look like they hadn't had a bath in two days. Dads, maybe you feel this when money's tight and you're the breadwinner and you feel like it's your responsibility and you just need to do more and more. How do you feel when you try and it feels like it never seems to be enough. I think the devil would like it very much if we believe that we got in by grace but pleased our Savior by how much we do. The performance treadmill kills, but grace gives life. Number two, the performance treadmill is deceptive, but grace is honest and transparent. You are more sinful and broken than you could dare to imagine. That you are more loved and accepted at the same time in Christ Jesus than you ever dare dream. Friends, the gospel tells you, it is honest and transparent. It tells you, you are bad. You have done bad. And it gives honest and transparent hope. But Jesus died for bad. You were awful, but Jesus died for awful. You know what the performance treadmill says? That deceptive little skunk. It says, you're almost there. And 20 years later, you're almost there. And all the while, that treadmill goes nowhere. You're in the exact same spot. And lastly, number three, the performance treadmill produces guilt, but grace produces love. The performance treadmill induces this extreme self-focus, doesn't it? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Oh, I haven't done enough. Haven't. How can you focus on loving others if you're consumed with how well you're doing on that treadmill? You're shackled. But if you believe that you have followed chapter 7, that you are absolutely bankrupt, and you encounter grace, and you believe that you've been healed, friends, and your eyes lifted, you're no longer looking inside, have I done enough? You're looking at your neighbor. You're looking at your friend and considering ways in which you can love them because you're no longer worried about that performance treadmill because you've gotten off and you're free. 
Which bankruptcy have you declared? Temporary or permanent? And how does God's grace enter in to where you are in this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. And not just grace at the beginning, but from the beginning to the end. Help us believe it. Help us believe it. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.